Hey there everyone, what's up? Hoping you're doing well in general and trading safely in particular. This is Matt Pipenberg and welcome to episode one of the Signals Matter podcast where we're going to make sense of the Federal Reserve. Welcome to the Signals Matter podcast, where it's all about cutting through the fog of financial media spin so that you can think, trade, and manage risk like an investor rather than a gambler. And now, here's your host, Matthew Pippenberg, a true market geek and legend in his own mind of weaving and mixing metaphor to make the complex simple. Hey there, heaps of thanks for coming to today's episode. Really appreciate it and looking forward to being a part of your and my shared journey navigating the fog of markets, hopefully with a bit more common sense and frank speaker candor that's just not found, we think, in the pablum of sell-side spin on the mainstream financial media. Uh, Today's episode is about making metaphorical sense of the Federal Reserve, which I recognize seems like a boring topic, but we hope to make it not so boring. Uh, Make sure to check out as well just the blog section on our website, which addresses uh, central banks in general and a number of other topics from stocks and bonds to macros. Um, We really recommend you take a peek at our investment primer, which you can download for free. And that puppy goes from the 30,000 foot to the two foot level and everything from macros and portfolios to, you know, recession risks. And then, of course, individual stock or security selection and, and how to manage that risk. Um, it's a lot there and it's all yours. Just jump on it for free, no strings attached. Um, We think we've done a lot to sift through the noise and provide a refreshingly blunt bottom line, good and bad, bear or bull, on the risks you face in these markets in general and securities in particular. So we really hope you join us for free on these blogs and in our, excuse me, our blogs and uh, these podcasts, which we're just starting off with. And we, we chose the Federal Reserve as the starting point for a reason. Again, give us a shot. It's not as boring as you think and look forward to spending some few minutes with you on this topic. Okay, so let's let's just dig right into the Fed or the Federal Reserve. Um, where to begin? <laughs> Uh, I should preface everything by saying uh, here that I have a strong bias, as you can tell from my blogs, and certainly if you're a subscriber and you looked at the section on the Central Bank or the Federal Reserve and the Market School, I don't hold any punches on my view of, uh, of this particular Central Bank in the U.S., or frankly, the central bank policies we're seeing all over the world, from the ECB in Europe to the Bank of Japan to the Bank of China to the Swiss National Bank. Uh, the problems we see at the central bank in the U.S. are pretty much a global problem now. But let's let's focus on the Federal Reserve in the United States. I want to do a brief little history of its origins and its definition and then get right into how the Federal Reserve has done its magic, its voodoo, uh, from really uh, 1913 when it was founded up to the current times. We'll look at the central bank as we're looking at U.S. history, really, because as you watch the history of the United States, it's in its markets, and if you watch its political history and its financial history, it's very much in a blender. Um, there's a template here that we'll see real clearly playing itself out in how the Federal Reserve does what it does. And we'll be looking at FDR to Nixon, uh, from Bernanke and Yellen back to Martin and Volcker, 
We'll be looking at different market cycles from 87 to 98 to 2000 to 2008 to today. So we'll kind of see a pattern evolving in how central bank policy and its tricks, um, basically controlling the money supply and controlling the price of money, how that wreaks havoc on cycles in the markets and how it distorts really normal uh, price discovery, normal supply and demand forces, which is what capitalism should theoretically be based on, but in practice is not what we're seeing in a world where really in a $20 trillion economy today where we rely on folks like Yellen or Greenspan or Bernanke or the next Fed chairperson to control things from employment to markets to inflation like a thermostat. Uh, unfortunately, our markets, our economy are far too complex to be in the hands of a central bank. And frankly, if you look at the history of central bank forecasting or central bank efficiency, it has a terrible, terrible track record. And yet, uh, we as investors or we as human beings like our teddy bears, we like our rituals, um, we like our headlines to comfort us, but there's really nothing under the hood at the central bank that makes any sense for us to have any faith in it then or now. So that's a very long and biased preface to, to what we're about to hear or go through on, on the Federal Reserve. But by its Let's just start with its simple definition. I mean, the Federal Reserve is a entity that ironically says a lot about itself by its very title. The Federal Reserve is neither federal nor a reserve. It's in fact a private bank with no congressional oversight. Um, it works independent of uh, our three branches of government, yet, you know, if you drive down Constitutional Avenue, uh, there's the Federal Reserve looking very constitutional and very government-like. Uh, the irony is even our own constitution in its early amendments uh, only gave Congress the power to control our money supply. So the irony is that the central bank or the Fed isn't really a constitutionally um, valid entity. It was signed into law, we'll go into that uh, later, it was signed into law in 1913, but it really is an unconstitutional entity uh, made constitutional, quote unquote, by uh, fiat of President Wilson in 1913. But I think that kind of ironic title and ironic origin is something to keep in mind. Um, but again, keep in mind that the Federal Reserve really is not a part of the U.S. government, but it's certainly a daily part of our uh, political talk and certainly our market talk. And just that alone, I think many people don't even realize. Um, the idea of the Federal Reserve was, uh, in practice, to have a source of money for its member banks. Uh, the member banks are spread throughout the U.S. There are 12 of them. Uh, there's one in San Francisco and in Boston and uh, in Minnesota. And each of these member banks um, are there to help each other in case there's ever a need for liquidity that they can borrow from each other or help each other with liquidity. So there's never a run on the bank like there was in the later part of the 19th century before the central bank was brought into law. The idea being, uh, at least on the surface, that it was important to have a, a committee of banks or a group of banks that can cooperate with each other to provide liquidity. And those 12 member banks form what is called the um, FOMC. And that is really 
the central bank group, um, the FOMC is under the auspices or really the ultimate control of the central bank in Washington, D.C., but there's member banks, like I said, scattered throughout the U.S., in New York and Boston, et cetera, and elsewhere. Uh, the Federal Open Market Committee is what the FOMC stands for, and it has 12 member banks. Um, in terms of how the central bank operates, I think um, that's something we should look at. But first, let's look at its origins. And I talk about this a lot in the market school on the central bank, and I won't go into a long history of the origins of the central bank. But suffice it to say, they're very dubious and very gray. Uh, in 1910, in Hoboken, New Jersey, under the cover of darkness, late at night, a bunch of very powerful uh, bankers from Europe and the United States uh, with direct ties to the U.S. cabinet um, met secretly at a train station in Hoboken, New Jersey, got into a private train car, and the, that group of men, about 10, 10 of them, who wouldn't use their last names in case there was anyone in the press around, that's how kind of cloak and dagger this was, got in this train car, had some cognacs, had some smoked trout and some pheasant, and took that train all the way down to the coast of Georgia, and you can't make this up, to a place called Jekyll Island, where these bankers effectively created the idea of the central bank in 1910. That's where it was conceived. Uh, without getting into a lot of the details and biases, in my opinion, all it really was was a banking cartel where they could agree uh, to help each other out and to do things to take control of the banking system, not only in the private banking system, but to ease their way into the federal system so that they could do what they wanted to do without the onerous headache of legal restrictions, legislation, or go governmental or congressional oversight. And there are many other books and white papers and blogs on the dark history of the conception of the central bank, but that I won't get into here. But it was a pretty shady thing going on at Jekyll Island back in 1910. And in fact, it took a few years for that law or that idea to pass muster. There was a lot of resistance. But finally, in 1913, in December 1913, Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve into law in direct violation of our Constitution and in direct violation to the founders of our country. Thomas Jefferson had said, that he feared a central private bank with the power to control money supply and the price of money uh, in the U.S. more than he feared a standing army, on US, a foreign army on U.S. shores. Uh, Andrew Jackson was even more vocal and more vehement in some of the word choices he had uh, on the idea of a central bank. And the irony of all ironies is that even Woodrow Wilson, who was always afraid of this cartel, later admitted, and this is the man who created the central bank, or at least not created, but signed it into law by executive order, he later admitted that it was not only the darkest day of his life, uh, but the darkest day of U.S. history. So that's a lot coming from Woodrow Wilson, whose signature is on the, the act that brought the central bank into being in 1913. Uh, it clearly creates um, a dark foundation to the rest of this conversation, but I think it's worth noting that. So let's say what let's let's kind of talk about what does the Federal Reserve really do then in practice? And we're going to go through a history of the Federal Reserve from you know the 1920s up to the day. But I think um, most of us can remember 2008, and and that's probably one of the best places just to start. That the central bank can literally print money out of thin air, and I don't mean at a printing press somewhere in Kentucky or Minnesota or Michigan. They can 
walk into their offices on Constitutional Ave or on K Street, sit down with a computer, grab some coffee and donuts, hit uh, a few mouse clicks, and simply add zeros to the account of the U.S. As if you could go into your own Citibank or Wells Fargo account, hack in, you've got $1,000 in your checking account, and you just add a few zeros, and suddenly you've got a billion or a trillion dollars in your checking account. It's that simple, it's that crazy, and it's exactly how they've been doing it, especially uh, since 2008, printing money out of thin air for the use of bailing uh, organizations and other banks out or giving stimulus uh, to the economy, which is really not the economy they're stimulating. It's the stock market, which is what has been stimulated. And certainly since 2008, the stock market has been nothing but steroid-driven. Uh, the other tool that the central bank has or the Fed has, in addition to printing money out of thin air, is adjusting short-term interest rates. Um, and so when you make uh, rates very low, and they've been at the zero bound since the crisis in 2008, when you set rates really low, that is a huge stimulus or steroid effect for publicly traded companies or private companies or governments like the U.S. to borrow like mad and get on a huge IOU fix where they become addicted to debt. Um, and that also provides a lot of at least short-term binge fun. Um, I think of the Federal Reserve ultimately as the ultimate uh, provider of kegs to the ultimate fraternities of banks that love getting drunk on either free money out of thin air or cheap money at a low rate policy. So that combination of quantitative easing or printing money and low interest rate policy or zero bound interest rate policy, which I call ZERP, the zero interest rate policy, the combination of quantitative easing and ZERP or QE and ZERP is a hell of a lot of beer at the keg party. And the result has been just a drunken market, uh, especially since 2008. But I want to back up and kind of talk about the pattern that led to the scenario we're in now in 2008 with these just drunken, bacchanalian, overvalued markets by any metric, bond and stock. And although this conversation today is not about stock market or bond market valuation or yield curves or P.E. ratios or earning per share or Schiller indices or, you know, 10-year treasuries, suffice it to say, bull or bear, uh, banker or hedge fund guy, retail investor or kid next door, it's pretty obvious to all of us that these markets as of uh, November 2017 are just massively bubbly, frothy. But how did we get here and how do we keep getting to these cycles of boom and bust, boom and bust, boom and bust? I'd like to argue that a big part of that is thanks directly to our friends on Constitutional Ave over at the Eccles Building at the Federal Reserve. And that's why this conversation is so important. Um, the template we're going to walk through when we look at the Federal Reserve is really a template of volatility, um, low rate leverage causing credit cycles or credit booms. Um, really mispriced assets, um, which encourage even riskier vehicles like CDOs or CLOs and derivatives. And uh, ultimately, uh, things like greater valuations and, or greater tendencies to go into junk bonds. In other words, taking higher risk because the central bank has distorted so many fundamentals of the economy and markets that uh, the history of the central bank is really a history of real distortion. And let's kind of just start with something we all remember from high school civics or high school government or high school econ, the great crash of 29. And um, our former Fed Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke, the scholar out of Princeton, wrote a thesis that basically 1929 was a failure to bail out the banks that were suffering from a run. And that because of that failure in 1929, 
it was really important that going forward, if we ever had another bank failure, i.e. 2008, that we not repeat the mistakes of 29 and let banks fail. I'm not a Princeton PhD, uh, neither is my colleague, or neither are a lot of the folks that we work with, but frankly, that's just pure rubbish, and that's our opinion. I think it's backed by a hell of a lot of facts. But the truth of the matter is the crisis of 1929 wasn't because we didn't bail out the banks in 1929. The crisis in 1929 was that in the 1920s, the roaring 20s that led up to 1929, central banks had created a lot of easy, hot money with low rates. And this is something we're going to see over and over again in the history of U.S. markets and boom and bust cycles, is that every bubble is created by easy credit, low rates, and overuse of leverage and an exuberance to put a lot of debt-driven money or easy money into the markets and ride that high and get drunk at that frat party and enjoy that keg of beer. And that's really what the Fed had done in the 1920s, 1923, 24, 25, 26, 27. Those years leading up to 1929 are the real kind of skunk in the woodpile, not the failure to bail out the banks in 1929, which is what Bernanke had written. And I think many scholars have since just kind of laughed at but that was what Bernanke thought, and that's why it'll be important when we look at 2008 to, to come back to that. But for now, let's just keep in mind this is step one or part one of the template. Every market crisis is preceded by easy, hot money and over-exuberance and overuse of leverage from 1920s to today. And in the 1920s leading up to 1929's crash, there were years and years of just um, really easy money policies at the central bank level. So that was one kind of part of the leading into the crisis that led to 1929. The response to that crisis is very typical as well. And the first response by FDR under the Thomas Amendment 1933 was to take the chaperone away from the frat party where markets needed to get drunk. And one way to take a chaperone away from a frat party is to take your currency off any kind of standard i.e. a gold standard. And in 1933, that's exactly what, what FDR did. He didn't want to have his currency, his U.S. dollar, confined by a chaperone or limited by a chaperone. And once you take gold off the standard of the U.S. dollar, you can print as much as you want and be damned the rest of the world what they think of that, but the dollar is no longer going to be constrained by that un pesky little unhelpful thing called a actual collateral or actual standard, i.e. gold. And really then what the dollar was supported by was the good faith and credit of the U.S. government, not anything representing real collateral like gold. Well, obviously the good faith and credit of the U.S. government is not going to be a problem. Whenever the government needs more money, they can just print more money. So the issue isn't whether the government of the United States would ever default, but when you start printing more of something, you dilute its value, which ultimately leads to inflation, which we'll see coming down the road when Nixon comes into office and does the same thing. And we'll certainly see it in our own lives after this bubble that we've created post-2008 bursts. But getting back to the template that leads to market cycles at the Federal Reserve level and their role in it, you know, part one really is easy credit, easy money, hot money, over-exuberance, and then a U.S. dollar that has no chaperone. And that's what we saw in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so you could spend and debase the dollar, and you could spend that money uh, on things like the New Deal, when FDR got a lot of attention um, for creating all these public works organizations and highways and dams, and that that was supposedly what got us out of the crisis of the 1929 crash. 
but historians both at the political and economic level have since kind of reached the consensus that it really, despite FDR's best efforts, he wasn't much of an economist. And what really got us out of the crisis of the, of the 1929 crash wasn't um, easy money or no dollar uh, backed by gold or debasing the currency. What got us out of the crash of the 1920s was the war of the 1930s and 40s, i.e. World War II, when we became really the world's um, basic creditor and manufacturer for military goods. So let's just keep that in mind. The template really here that we're going to see now is easy credit. That's part one with a debased dollar. The explosive speculation that all is follows easy credit. At some point, a trigger will pop that bubble of exuberance. That's part three, the trigger that pops the bubble. And then part four really is policymakers who step in to give quick fixes, which just start the cycle all over again, i.e., once there's a crash or a crisis, the central banks go right back into their old bag of tricks and start pushing rates down or, or increasing the supply of money to stimulate, uh, quote-unquote, the economy. What we'll see is it really doesn't stimulate the economy. It just stimulates the stock and bond markets. Um, what's missing, I think, over and over, as we'll see, is any kind of restraint, humility, or political courage to say, look, we're in debt, we're in a crisis, we got over our skis, and we need to, we need to, we need to tighten our belts. And that's very unpopular politically, but it takes a lot of courage and honesty uh, at the policy level to say that. We'll see that there's very little of that type of courage and honesty. We saw it with uh, Ted Martin, or William Martin, excuse me, and... Um, and uh, Volcker, and we certainly saw it under the Truman and Eisenhower administrations, but since then, we've just that's just not been here, and we'll go into that in a second. But let's jump from that cycle of FDR, the boom and bust cycle, and meet our next kind of interesting character in the history of U.S. markets and uh, policy and central banks, and that would have to be Tricky Dick or Richard Nixon. Um, you know, Richard Nixon is many things, but he certainly is ambitious or was ambitious, and when he was coming up for election or re-election in the 1970. 1971, things weren't looking so good, and in particular, he needed more money for the company, or for the for the company, for the government to move forward and get a robust kind of GDP or a robust goodwill going into his election or his re-election. And you know, the easiest way for him to do that was uh, to take the dollar off of a gold standard again, because between World War II and, and Nixon's administration. At Bretton Woods after the war, the U.S. dollar got back on a gold standard and at Bretton Woods, and that was good. That was bringing the chaperone back into the currency, bringing the chaperone back into the frat party, and controlling things uh, for our economy and keeping our dollar honest. But Nixon needed more, he needed more dollars, and that chaperone was a real burden to him. So what did he do? In 1971, he took the, the dollar off the gold standard so he could you know, crank up the economy with some adding some zeros here and there or keeping rates low and giving that steroid effect of, uh, of a debased currency. And his central bank had no problem supporting that. Nixon had no problem doing that. And so what we had was a landslide re-election for Nixon, which, of course, he ended up blowing up later in, in Watergate. But again, it was the old, the old standard. Uh, debase the currency, get a standard off the dollar, keep rates low, encourage speculation, create a bubble, and then wait for that bubble to pop, which, of course, the bubble did pop. By the mid-'70s, we had massive inflation. We had a massive economic slowdown, and that was all the long-term effect of the short-sighted cowardliness of folks like Nixon and the central bank at the time, 
which really just wanted a quick fix, but we're just kicking the can uh, down the road later by ignoring the fact that whenever you really create hot money or low rates or a debased currency, all you're doing is buying a drunken good time for a short period and postponing a much painful and much longer hangover in the long run. And we'll see that over and over. It's worth noting, though, that when we skip from FDR to Nixon, uh, we overlooked folks like Truman and Eisenhower at the White House, and we overlooked folks like Martin and Volcker at the Central Bank. The four of these folks together probably uh, represent, in my opinion, uh, the four last great leaders in economic policy and, and White House leadership when it came to the markets and the economy. I mean, Truman was very, very unpopular, but very wise in the Korean War, which he paid for by raising taxes, not debt. And we'll talk about debt because we're at extraordinary debt levels today. But back in the day, Truman was not afraid to, to, to pay for that war the old-fashioned way, by paying for it ourselves, by raising taxes. Not popular in the polls, but it's like we do, it's the right way to do things. You got to pay for what you're playing for. Uh, Eisenhower, another in, amazing figure in terms of restraint and discipline and I think economic values, uh, balanced the budget under his administration by cutting spending on the military-industrial complex that he spoke so eloquently of in his, in his kind of goodbye speech in 1961 before Kennedy came in. But Eisenhower was not afraid as well to be very unpopular, uh, to keep our national budget and our national balance sheet and books in order. And he cut spending uh, significantly, even in the, in the, in the industry that, he, that made him famous, in the military industry. So, in fact, Eisenhower was the last president, uh, last administration to see spending actually shrink rather than grow while he was in office. And I'll tell you, the days of folks like Eisenhower are, are missed, and we don't even realize what we're missing today in a world since Eisenhower where we just spend and spend and spend uh, and increase our deficits to levels that are, at this point, unsustainable. But equally important during that Truman-Eisenhower period of time and then later were folks at the central bank who also recognized the power of the central bank and it should not be used to create what martin called a punch bowl uh william martin called it a punch bowl when the markets start to get a little too hot you can't keep printing money or keeping rates zero you need to tighten their belts put a little warm milk in their in their frat party and get them to have some coffee rather than more uh, martinis or beer and so martin was one of the first fed chairpersons or chairman to really come in and be unpopular in front of the eyes of Wall Street and tighten the belt and, and, and stop handing them that handout like spoiled nephews from a rich uncle. Volcker did the same thing post-Nixon when Nixon's short-term policies led to a lot, a lot of um, uh, uh, inflation and, and just crazy markets. Uh, Volcker was not afraid to raise interest rates rather than push them down. He was not afraid to tighten the belt. And we'll see as we go forward that there really hasn't been anything like uh, Volcker or Martin since. When you look at Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen, oh my gosh, it's just the opposite. It's a, it's a central bank that does nothing but kowtow to Wall Street and uh, provide more and more kegs of beer uh, rather than more and more hot coffee. Um, when you jump from Nixon, you know, the next big event in the markets was uh, Black Black Monday, uh, I think it was October 19th, 1987. I was still uh, on, a, on a bus going to a baseball game in high school at that time, but I remember Black Monday. Um, 
1987 market crashed 23% in a single day. Uh, big event. Um, what caused it? The irony of Black Monday in 1987 was that when Greenspan, Alan Greenspan, was coming in um, to the new position of the Fed chair, the markets really did think that Greenspan was going to be a, a Volcker too, that he was going to tighten monetary policy and raise interest rates, and the markets hate that. And so the markets panicked when, when Greenspan came in. I think what's even more fascinating about Black Monday is Lazarus Tuesday. What people don't talk about is although the markets crashed dramatically on uh, the 19th of October, what's more fascinating is how much they rebounded the next day. And that was thanks to Mr. Greenspan. Rather than be the enemy of Wall Street, he became its mistress and immediately cranked rates down to get that stock market back up. And by doing so, uh, he clearly alleviated any fears that he was going to be a hawk at the central bank level, and we've had nothing but dove since. But by cranking rates down that same day after the crash in, in October of 87, the markets immediately ripped back up. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's just a testament to that kind of short-sighted, cowardly, I think, central bank policymaking that really bows to Wall Street's whims. And rather than be... Uh, disciplined or be a good chaperone at the, at the frat, like like Volcker or Martin. Um, Greenspan started a trend where he was more afraid of seeing the markets go down uh, than the economy. I'm sure he meant well, but he clearly hadn't looked at his own uh, papers from his own academic studies that show you can't keep stimulating markets uh, to create discipline. You create a moral hazard. Um, after the 87 crash, we saw other things in the markets. We saw the Chicago Board of Exchange or the Merck get into derivatives. I won't go into a lot of that. Guys like Leo Malamed or Milton Friedman or a young economist, Alan Greenspan, before he was a Fed chairman, introduced derivatives into the sleepy Board of Exchange Chicago and really just levered massive amounts of risk, which is what happens when, when, when guys get together and try and come up with new ways to take on more ways to make money by creating much more risk and kind of sketchy vehicles to do that and sketchy uses of leverage. Uh, the next big event that tested Mr. Greenspan was 1998 when, when long-term capital under John Merriweather, uh, due to a Russian default, uh, went from being the bell of the ball to the ugly duckling in the corner. When, when long-term capital crashed, it was a, a massive, massive private hedge fund. And as a result of its crash, the S&P went down 12% something that certainly we hardly see anymore. But a 12% dip in the S&P, as painful as it is, is normal. Markets are supposed to go up and down and are supposed to punish bad behavior, bad behavior like long-term capital management's use of leverage and algorithms rather than fundamental analysis and common sense. But in any event, when the S&P crashed in 1998, the immediate reaction of Mr. Greenspan at the Fed was to bail out the markets. And so immediately, like a rich uncle to a spoiled nephew, uh, the reaction from the central bank was to crank rates down to zero, or not to zero, but to crank rates down dramatically and help the stock market recover. Not the economy, just the stock market. And as a result of cranking uh, rates down and helping the spoiled nephews on, on Wall Street, the rich uncle at the Fed simply did what it always does, created another cycle. Easy money, low rates, no currency uh, chaperone, creates more speculation, which is just what we saw in the dot-com mania, which followed not too long during the 1998 long-term capital period. Any of us who were trading in the late 90s and early 2000 
remembered that massive tailwind that low rates created. Uh, the S&P in the 90s ballooned um, by 4x uh, and earnings at 28.5 times earnings. The index went up from 110 in 1982 to 1485 by 2000. The NASDAQ was trading at 1,000 time earnings, so we remember that was a massive, massive bubble. And we saw crazy things then, like Dell going from five cents a share to $54 a share and back down to $10 a share. That was a period where Dell had a 1,100x multiple increase in valuation. Just kind of crazy stuff. Crazy stuff like we see today with Tesla or Amazon or Netflix. Again, not companies that are necessarily gonna die, but companies that are really, really overvalued. Um, but, you know, what did we learn from the dot-com lesson, you know, after the long-term capital, after Black Monday, the central banks come in, crank rates down to zero or crank rates low, excuse me, and try to stimulate the stock market. All they do is just postpone pain and create bigger bubbles. And the dot-com bubble was just one more of those events. But what was the lesson of the dot-com bubble when it crashed in 2001, April in 2001? What did... What did Greenspan do there? Did he learn his lesson? Did he tighten the belt? Did he take away the punch bowl like Martin had done or Volcker had done? No, what Alan Greenspan, who's now on book tours giving speeches and looking as an apologist for some exuberance, what Alan Greenspan did after the 2001 dot-com crash was go right back to the old template and push rates down again and encourage massive amounts of speculation through easy credit. And we saw that easy credit come out in the form of bad M&A deals like Time and AOL or Uniphase. Um, we saw a lot of leverage buyout deals like Clear Channel and Altel and Hilton Hotels after the dot-com bust. We saw a ton of stock buybacks, you know, Cisco, Exxon, Microsoft. You know, in other words, the same kind of crap we're seeing today in another bubble. But what happened when, when Greenspan, after the 2001 dot-com collapse, all he did from the collapse of one bubble was basically create another bubble. Uh, and that was by easy credit, the tailwind of easy credit and low rates and stupid speculation and M&A and LBO deals and stock buybacks. Um, and what that did for the, the, uh, the market was fantastic. What it did for the real economy, absolutely nothing. In fact, between 2000 and 2007, D, excuse me, 2007, uh, GDP in our, in our country grew by $4 trillion. But U.S. debt surged by $27 trillion. So you're getting just massive amounts of debt for very little growth. And you're just creating a bubble. And, of course, we know what the next bubble was after the dot-com bubble. It was the real estate bubble. And that, of course, was the direct result of low rates. You had mortgage brokers. Its um, balance sheets just ballooned in the 80s from about $200 billion to over $1.5 trillion in the early 90s. You had mortgage pools levered at 200 to 1. And those mortgage pools, which thanks to Fannie Mac and Freddie Mac and Ginny Mac, all these government-sponsored entities that were acting like hedge funds and throwing parties in Georgetown. They, they tranched and syndicated all these crappy subprime mortgages and made them look like A students when they were really D-minus students. And really just putting pigs on lipstick. You know, the Case-Shiller Index went up about 60% by 2001, and by the peak in 2006, the index was up by almost 200%. So all you had, again, was a tailwind of low rates, thanks to the central bank, thanks to Alan Greenspan at the time, which led to a major bubble, um, and which bubble eventually popped in 2008 when banks like Lehman or, or uh, you know Morgan Stanley or Bear Stearns or Goldman or other major banks, the Citigroup, had tons of these pigs and lipsticks on their balance sheets, on their banks. And when those pigs and lipstick were revealed to be what they really were, these banks got caught 
uh, with, uh, caught naked in, in low tide. And what was the response in 2008 from our central banks? What was the response? Well, it's very similar. It's the same response we saw in 1929 through the 30s under the crash. It's the same response we saw after Nixon in 1971. It's the same response we saw after Black Monday in 87. It's the same response we saw after long-term capital management in 1998. It's the same response we saw after the dot-com bubble crashed in 2001. And what's that response? Bail out Wall Street with easy money, low rates, and in this case, let's take it one step further, let's start printing some money. So when the markets crashed in 2008, the, the keg party really kicked in from the Federal Reserve. Not only did they bring kegs, they backed up an entire brewery behind the frat house and just poured the beer into the markets. And it, was, it has been and has been nothing but a drunken bacchanalia ever since. You know, within weeks or minutes of the crash of the big banks in 2008, the two big to fail banks, um, you know, the Federal Reserve basically created $900 billion in, out of thin air in seven weeks. But that $900 billion, as staggering amount as that is, uh, is really uh, just the tip of the iceberg. Between 2008 and uh, November of 2014, uh, the central bank literally got crazy with their mouse clicks and their balance sheets and printed just about $3.7 trillion in that six-year period. And the Federal Reserve's balance sheet went from $800 billion to $4.5 trillion. Uh, our U.S. deficit climbed up to what it is today at $20 trillion. But we actually quintupled our money supply in a period of six years. You cannot, cannot, cannot underestimate the significance of that. We printed more money from 06, excuse me, from 08 uh, to 2014 than we had done in the entire history of our country, compounded. And... The ramifications of that are going to be massive. I won't go into that here. We'll do separate sections on other boring topics like inflation or the velocity of money or the CPI index and how bogus it is and what that means for the yield on the 10-year treasury in inflation-adjusted ways. But those are other, other podcasts. Right now, suffice it to say that the steroids were at full power post-2008, and it just is amazing. And so what did we do? Uh, we created another bubble. What's very unique about the 2008 going forward bubble that we're in right now is unlike 87 or 98 or 2000 or even 2006 real estate bubble and 2008 crash, the current bubble we're in now isn't located or kind of resigned to a specific sector or area. The dot-com was clearly the tech sector. The 08 crisis was really the real estate subprime mortgage fiasco. 87 and 98 were one-offs based on policy or certain hedge funds. But what we have in the post-2008 markets, which right now are trading 40% uh, higher than they were at the peak of our last crash in 08, what we have now is a Lance Armstrong effect unlike anything we've ever seen in stocks, bonds, real estate, currencies, commodities. You're just seeing... Um, huge, huge amount of bubble creation as a result of those trillions of dollars printed and really what's been at least uh, almost 10 years of a zero to low in to no interest rate policy 
in the U.S. and then across the globe, the central banks of the world are following our lead, which we followed from Japan post Nikkei, of printing money and cranking rates down. It's a hell of a lot of fun. It creates massive market distortions, massive market bulls like we're seeing right now. And I don't care whether you're a bull or a bear. You cannot deny that by every metric, um, uh, and even the big banks are made, by every real metric, these markets are generally overvalued, sometimes extremely overvalued, and not trading on fundamentals. And so but what makes this particularly dangerous in the backdrop of the Federal Reserve and the history of these cycles is we now have a bubble in just about every asset class. And much more important, we're running out of beer. That chaperone is gone, and uh, the keg party from the Fed is at full swing. But when the markets crash again, for whatever reason, we won't go into the possible triggers, which we're watching here at, the, at Signals Matter all the time. We won't go into the possible triggers. Sometimes there are no triggers. Sometimes the markets just die of their own weight, like it did in 2001 in the dot-com bubble. Uh, in 2008, you had the Lehman moment. But sometimes it just simply pops. But we're looking at those things very carefully. But when this market pops, whether it's in 10 minutes, 10 weeks, or two or three years, I'm not going to time that in this, in this podcast, but when it does, that central bank won't be able to crank rates down below zero, and it won't be able to print another four and a half to $5 trillion without having huge, huge impacts on our markets. And so we're kind of out of uh, dry powder, or more importantly, we're running out of beer and wine for the next uh, V-shaped recovery. If you're expecting a V-shaped recovery, like we saw in 08 from that steroid or beer effect of the Fed, it just won't be there the second time, which is why you have to be particularly careful now about managing risk and being a buy and hold or a long only investor at the top of these valuations. And, and that's other topics we'll talk about. But keep in mind, uh, all of this has to do a lot with uh, the leadership from the central bank and the failure to take away that punch bowl, the failure to admit that we're in over our skis. And Greenspan, Bernanke, and Yellen in particular are really guilty of the same type of uh, uh, subservience really to markets as opposed to the economy and, and that's a biased statement but you know the central bank has not um, and cannot uh, by itself you know 12 member committee and a few chair people cannot manage a 20 trillion dollar economy like you're managing a thermostat in a house and I think investors faith in central banks or chair women or chairmen in particular is naive the pundits love it because they can talk about central banks. They can talk about the rich uncle always there to help you. If you think the Fed has your back, that's just as much of an illusion as thinking real estate prices won't go down. It's just as much of an illusion as saying that tech stops won't go down. We, 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 those illusions were broken in 2001 when tech stops tanked. And certainly the real estate illusion was, was broken in 2008 when real estate markets tanked. And if you think the Fed has your back and can protect you again, that's the illusion behind this everything bubble right now. Be very careful about it. And if you really, and we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but if you look at the projections or the quotes or the words of Fed chairmen or chairwomen just before a market crash, they were always wrong. <laughs> always. So the experts with the PhDs from the Ivy League schools that we rely on to get us through the everything bubble have not ever been right in the past, and they won't be right again in the future. It's, it's not in their power. They're not superheroes. What they can do is create a lot of um, fun in the interim, uh, but Bernanke, Yellen, et cetera, will go down in history, I think, um, in the same way Nixon did when he went up the gold standard uh, poorly. 
So that's it for the conversation. It's a long one on the Federal Reserve. It's a little boring. Um, I really recommend that you go to Signals Matter um, blog site, and there's a category called Central Banks, and you can read a lot more detail and some of the numbers and some of the quotes and see the relationship between central bank policy, low rates, and how that impacts the bond and stock market, which we'll go into in separate podcasts. Really, really enjoyed your time. Hope this was interesting for you. Play it back. Get a little sense of the central bank history. Seems like a boring topic, but it's absolutely essential to the risk ahead and the way we and you trade securities in the backdrop of a really distorted market. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that journey down Federal Reserve Lane. If you're a Signals Matter subscriber, you can find uh, much more on the Fed's illustrious history and mercurial workings at the Market School prompt. Uh, for the rest of you, there's gobs on this subject in the blog library at signalsmatter.com, where you can surf through a pretty thick offering of categories and topics from uh, stocks and bonds to central banks, politics, and, and macro topics. And make sure to download as well a free copy of our Signals Matter investment primer. It really is a fantastic and super user-friendly collection of some of our best thinking here at Signals Matter. So be well, and as always, be safe with your investing. We'll talk to you soon.